The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. Let me first welcome members of our armed forces who are tuning in from outposts all around the world over the Internet. We thank you for your service and also for your many letters and emails. I also want to take a moment to welcome listeners who are tuning in on new radio affiliates in Texas, Wyoming, Florida, Michigan, California, New York, and throughout all 50 states. Thank you for making us part of your Newsweek. In just a moment... Former U.S. Senator from Arkansas, Mr. Mark Pryor, will be joining us to talk about why Arkansas is one of the states to watch in the national presidential election and what he did as a senator to broker peace when Bush was preparing to nominate court justices. Though the tables have turned, according to Pryor, there is a way to keep the country's business moving forward. But before Mr. Pryor joins us, As is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Mark Lunsford Pryor was born in Lafayetteville, Arkansas, the son of former governor of Arkansas, David Pryor. He earned his undergraduate degree and law degree from the University of Arkansas, after which he worked in private practice. He was elected to the Arkansas House of Representatives in 1991. Then in 1998, he ran for and won the race for Arkansas Attorney General, a position he served until 2003. Then in 2001, he threw his hat in the ring for the Senate. And after a hard-fought race, won by 54%, he served in the U.S. Senate from 2003 through last year. In addition to serving on numerous Senate committees, Mr. Pryor was also largely responsible for the Sacrifice Act, which provides the families of injured military personnel more timely, reliable, and complete medical care. Following his successful Senate career, Mr. Pryor joined the Venable Law Firm, and today we are fortunate to have him with us to take a look at what the voters in Mr. and Mrs. Clinton's home state might do come the national election. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, former Senator of Arkansas, Mr. Mark Pryor. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Pryor. Rebecca, thank you for having me. It's great to be on. Now, we like to keep this program as nonpartisan as possible. So in the interest of full disclosure, I want listeners to know that you have been named as one of the people on Mrs. Clinton's Leadership Council in Arkansas. Arkansas, is that right? It is right. Um, yeah, here's the truth about this. I, I've I, I served with actually Senator Clinton and Senator Sanders and Senator Rubio and Senator Cruz and several people that have dropped out of the race now. And also, I actually was Attorney General in my state when Mike Huckabee was our governor. So I have lots of intersections with all these people, but. I do have a special relationship with Bill and Hillary Clinton. Um, For your listeners who aren't that familiar with Arkansas politics, historically, um, my my dad, my father was in the, he was in the U.S. House, he was governor, he was in the Senate, and when my dad was governor, for example, Bill Clinton was the attorney general. When my dad was in the Senate, for a lot of the years, Bill Clinton was governor, and then later Bill Clinton was president during that time. So we, we've known uh, Bill and Hillary and Chelsea Clinton uh, for a long time, and I think I first met Hillary Clinton when I was about 11 years old, and, you know, she was probably all of, you know, 25 or whatever she was, you know, at the time. She's about 15 years older than me. So, anyway. Well, sure, but when you're 11, that seems old. <laughs> I, exactly. No, it does. But I guess my point is that... Um, 
you know, I, I, I'm naturally going to be for Hillary in this race. And mm-hmm. and, and let me let me say this uh, for your listeners who don't know her, and I know most of them don't. They've never met her, never been in the same room with her. But I served with her in the Senate, and I'd, I've known her, like I said, for a long, long time. But I've never really worked with her. Uh, we didn't practice law together. We didn't practice law against each other when we were in Arkansas together. But um, you know, I just didn't run across her professionally like that. But when I got to the Senate, I sat right next to her on the Senate Armed Services Committee. And one of the things uh, I had told people at the time, and by the way, at the time I didn't know she was going to run for president, but at, the, at that moment in time, one thing I would tell people is that um, when you look at all the senators, and I, I was fortunate, I served with a lot of great senators. I really did. Senator Byrd of West Virginia and many others, uh, actually Senator Kennedy, uh, Senator Stevens of Alaska, we could go through, Senator Inouye, we could go through others. Really, really good senators that will go down in the history books as great senators. But the best senator we had in all the Senate was Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. And that was because, in my view, my my understanding is that she's very smart. She was very prepared. She took the issues very seriously. Didn't take herself always so seriously, but took the issues very, very seriously, took her responsibility seriously. She had great staff. Mm -hmm. And as a testimony to her, just for your listeners' knowledge, when President, you know, she lost the race to Senator Obama, President-elect Obama asked her to become uh, Secretary of State. Um, When that happened, she passed the Senate 94 to 2, mm-hmm. which means basically every single Republican except two voted for her to be Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. And it just shows when people weren't paying attention, they weren't thinking about, you know, the election cycle of 2016, sure. uh, the respect that they have for her. And people who know her and have worked with her really it, it really comes through well i don't think anybody ever, who knows yeah. how our government works is ever surprised that people change their opinions yeah <laughs> you well, know once right. there's more at stake yeah. now everyone uh i think listening today expects mrs clinton to win arkansas in a national election because that's where bill and hillary started their political careers but the southern states have recently flipped from a Democratic stronghold to voting much more conservatively from the Carolinas to Texas. Only one governor's seat and one Senate seat is a Democratic. So what does this mean for Mrs. Clinton in a national election? Well, it's interesting because you're right. Uh, if you really probably starting in the 70s, but certainly in the election of 1980 when President Reagan was elected, um, that's when you really saw the disintegration of the solid South. The South, as we know, used to be solidly Democratic, and yes. it had been since the Civil War. You know, we all know the history there, and we all know the you know there's some there's a negative part of that history too in terms of civil rights et cetera we all know that but but nonetheless it was very solidly democratic until really President Reagan came along there was some weakening in the 70s but when President Reagan came along uh, the a lot of white voters primarily middle class voters in the South started to vote for the Republicans but on the national level. But there's been a dramatic shift in just the past uh, four years. Well, that's what I was going to say mm-hmm. and so that trend. Ex- it, it, Arkansas was like this one little island that that didn't happen. Yes. You know, it was the last th- stronghold. Yeah, and I think I think if you look at it again historically, in the seventies and eighties, you had these three very capable leaders and politicians in Arkansas. You had my father, David Pryor. You had Dale Bumpers, Senator Bumpers, mm-hmm. and then you had. Uh, Bill Clinton. All three had been governor. Two of those were in the Senate. And of course, then Bill Clinton becomes president. But during those times when the the whole rest of the South was going Republicans, it seems like those three sort of great personalities held our state in the Democratic column. So what what happened is over time is the Arkansas Democrats, quite honestly, got pretty far out of sync with the national Democrats. The, The Democrats in Arkansas were much more reflective of the values and the attitudes of the people in the state. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the changes that you've seen, and this is part of the polarization in politics in the last, say, 10 or 15 years, is that politics has been largely, largely nationalized. And so it is true. You you can go to my state, uh, like in 2014, and you'll see it again in 2016, a guy's running for state rep or state senate, and you're going to get mail at home that talks about how he supports Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it has nothing to do with Barack Obama. You know, the state. <laughs> but that's what you member, mean by nationalized. It's been nationalized. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. And the the messaging is all national now, and so that's changed. And Arkansas has been part of that change. Yeah, yeah. But as you point out, Arkansas was the last stronghold in the South. So it'll be interesting right. to watch them come this national election. We have to take right. our first break, but stay right where you are. We'll be back with more from Senator Mark Pryor. You're listening to the Costa Report. If you're wondering what to do with all that data you're creating, do I have an offer for you? Tableau is drag-and-drop software that people of any skill level can use to analyze and turn data into something actionable. That's right. I said actionable. And isn't that what all that data is for? With Tableau, you can connect to any data in virtually any format and visualize it on the fly. Databases, spreadsheets, even big data sources are instantly combined into usable charts, graphs, reports, and dashboards. People can analyze data and -and drag-and-drop drop at 10 times the speed of a traditional business intelligence system. But the most impressive thing about Tableau is that anyone can use it. And just to prove the point, you can get a free 14-day trial from Tableau just by mentioning you heard this ad. But do it now, because this offer won't last. For your free 14-day trial, visit Tableau at T-A-B-L-E-A-U dot com slash Costa. That's Tableau.com slash Costa. Tableau Software. What's your data trying to tell you? Caraccioli Cellars recently celebrated their fifth anniversary of their tasting room. This is what Enophiles had to say. My name is Samantha Cooper. The wines are so beautifully crafted, and you take so much time and effort that goes into making it uh, four years to make one bottle of wine, and they're just beautifully crafted, and they come out so amazing. My favorite would have to be the Brut Rosé. It's very near and dear to my heart. It was my wedding wine, actually. They loved it. Edmund Benich. Uh, I love the cuvee. I love the sparkle. It tickles my nose. Sarah Hines. I've been drinking Caraccioli for five years and I love it. You know, I'm across the board on this. I've been drinking their sparkling wine for some time and I love them all. I entertain a lot. I enjoy entertaining using the Caraccioli wines. Visit the Caraccioli Tasting Room on Dolores Street in Carmel-by-the-Sea or find us online at caracciolicellars.com or reach us by phone at 831-622-7722. On November 2, 2015, President Obama signed into law a controversial budget bill that will make two popular Social Security claiming strategies for couples obsolete. Are you between the ages of 60 and 67? Whether you are a baby boomer, married, divorced, or single, these changes to Social Security benefits may affect your retirement plan. Please join us for an informational meeting on the recent changes to Social Security benefits and how they may affect you on Saturday, March the 12th at 10 o'clock a.m. at the Best Western Seacliff Inn in Aptos. Call Croxall Capital Planning at 831-661-4006 or email us through our website at croxallcapital.com to reserve your spot. Seating is limited, so RSVP today. That's Croxall, C-R-O-X-A-L-L, Capital.com, or call us at 831-661-4006 to reserve your seat. Security and advisory services offered through National Planning Corporation, NPC. Member FINRA and CIPIC, a registered investment advisor. Consulting and investment management offered through Croxall Capital Planning, CCP. NPC, CCP, and Prudential are separate and unrelated companies. Matthew Homa is not a representative of NPC. Hi, I'm Andy, the produce manager at Ben Loman Market. This week, we are featuring California Brussels sprouts, $1.99 a pound, broccoli crowns, $0.89 cents a pound, and large artichokes, 2 for $6. From Washington, we have small Fuji apples, $0.99 cents a pound, Honeycrisp apples, $1.99 a pound, and 5-pound bag russet potatoes, $1.49 each. From Mexico, we have large tomatoes, $1.69 a pound, Roma tomatoes, $0.99 cents a pound, and cucumbers, two for $1. In organics, we are featuring navel oranges, $1.49 a pound, romaine lettuce, $1.99 each, and cilantro, Italian parsley, and parsley, $0.99 cents each. We carry a full line of fresh conventional produce and fresh organic produce. So come check out our great selection at Ben Lomond Market. Welcome. 
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former Senator of Arkansas, Mr. Mark Pryor. And before the break, you were making the point that one of the changes which has occurred in the past four years is politics has become much more nationalized. And Democrats in Arkansas might have gotten slightly out of step with that by being more locally focused. Right. That's right. And and historically, our voters really did vote for the person. And that's just changed a lot. It's much more party identification now. And of course, I don't think that's good. I don't think that's good for the system. I think that at the end of the day, you're not represented by parties, you're represented by people, you know, by elected officials. And you need to uh, vote for that person, regardless of their party. And our in our state, historically, people used to switch parties all the time. They'd split their ticket all the time. They would vote sure. for Reagan, then vote for Bill Clinton for governor or whatever. And, you know, that was just so common, and it's just not as common today. Yeah. Now, one of the issues that seems to be feeding the insurgent candidate popularity is the partisan gridlock in Washington, and nowhere has that been thrown out into the open more than the latest standoff over uh, the Supreme Court opening left by Justice Scalia. You were recently quoted as saying that you thought the political climate was much more toxic than when Bush was president, that it's, that it's far worse. Can you speak to that for a moment? Sure. Let me, let me just back up again for your listeners. Um, I, was, I was in the Senate. I, I came in in 2003, January of 2003. Mm-hmm. So President Bush had been in office a couple of years, and – that was the time when the Democrats decided to filibuster President Bush's judicial nominations. And that was basically unprecedented. There had been filibusters in the past, but never really organized and systematically done by the opposition party. And so Well, I want to add that it wasn't just the Democrats saying that they were going to filibuster. The Republicans said, "Well, that's okay. We'll change the filibuster rules." That's exactly, that's exactly <laughs> right. And and I was part of the group of 14 of us that came together, the so-called Gang of 14. And on the Republican side, it was John McCain and Lindsey Graham. And on the Democratic side, it was Ben Nelson of Nebraska and me. Yes. And we, we led this group of 14 of us, and we prevented the rules change. There were a few candidates that we agreed that we weren't going to support, that, that the Democrats weren't going to support. But then there was a group that we were going to kind of hold our nose and allow the procedural vote to happen. So we made the whole thing go away is basically what we did. And, well, you got um, agreement so, from both parties, the Republicans well, not to change the rules, and the Democrats yeah, not to filibuster everything that came yes, up. Yes, and really the way we did it is we never got the party leaders to agree to that. They were not happy that we'd done that, but we, in effect, individual senators, 14 of us, took that decision away from our leaders, and we said, look, we've got the votes to, to do this in the middle, so that's what we did. And uh, the, the the Senate at that moment was very, very toxic because the Democrats were filibustering. And again, it was, it was somewhat semi-unprecedented. So, so anyway, we, when we did that just overnight, what happened is it opened the floodgates for legislation. That was over. There was a lot of um, legislation that had been caught in that logjam. It started flowing. We had a very productive next year for the next year when we after we did that, it was great. It was really great. And everything, everybody's mood was better. The country felt better about the Senate, felt better about the Congress. This was far from a do-nothing Congress, et cetera, et cetera. Well, then, you know, things change. President Obama comes in a few years later, and the Republicans start filibustering. Well, now it's gotten so bad in the Senate that, and I hate to say this, but the day that Antonin Scalia died... Uh, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, majority leader in the Senate, came out and said, we're not going to have a vote. We're not even going to have a committee hearing on it. I just thought that was terrible. I thought that was terrible yeah, for the But let me ask you, are you saying there aren't seven Republicans and seven Democrats, 14 members of Congress that can't get together and do this again? Well, there should be. And uh, some. I mean, are, really do, are we so bad off we can't get seven from both sides to get together? Well... If I were there, I would try. Okay, I'm not there anymore, so I can't. I can't do that. And the guy who replaced me, there's no way he would do that. But can you but, try from the outside? Well, you know, I can, don't make can, me can, beg. I can encourage. I can cajole. I can write an op-ed or something. But at the end of the day, it's up to those individual senators to do it. 
you know, I was counting the other day. I was looking at a list, and there there probably would be uh, 14 that could come together. But let me tell you, it was hard because you had to stand. I mean, the Republicans, the Republicans, they lost elections over that. This, I mean, some of the individual Republican senators, their next go round, you know, their next election, whatever it was, they lost because. You know, they were accused of working with Democrats. Well, are, well, do you think they're afraid of uh, parting ways with their leadership? You yourself said the gang of 14 didn't consult with the leadership of both parties. They just went ahead and moved forward. Is this a case yeah. where people are not willing to uh, go ahead and move forward without the permission and endorsement of the party leadership? I, w- I would say two things. I would say, you know, under this circumstance, the, the heat, the trouble would be on the Republican side, right? Because because you would allow President Obama to make a nomination and actually go through the process. By the way, doesn't mean they vote for the person. They may not vote for him, but at least let him go through the process. So the heat would be on the Republican side. One thing I would suggest is one of the differences between now and 2005 when we did the Gang of 14, because it was 05 by the time it finally rolled around. But one of the differences is in the last uh, 11 years is the advent, the creation and really the dominance of the super PACs. The fact mm-hmm. that the Koch brothers and the people like the Club for Growth and so many others, uh, on, on primarily, on at least in this instance, in this context, on the Republican side, that, that has a chilling effect on courage in the Congress. And the reason it does is because if any Republican steps out of line guess what? He'll get a primary opponent. He or she will get a primary opponent. And guess what? That primary opponent will be better funded than the incumbent is. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, you're clearly supporting Hillary Clinton. Do you believe that she will be able to uh, tamper down this polarization? Or, or is she going to throw an extra log on the fight? No. I th- well, a lot of that's going to be up to the Republicans, how they treat her and how they react But we already know how they do. But I mean, that's, I, not, a, that's not a secret. No, no, that's not a secret. You're right, but so I, I don't, I don't know how the gridlock gets better. Is my question. Well, okay, the the way it, the only way it gets better is through leadership, and I think one of the things about Hillary that's that is uh, truer for her than anybody else, she's tough. I mean, she is tough. And guess what? The Republicans know it. That's why they voted for her, 94 But to she's also a, I don't think you'd argue, she's also a polarizing factor. She is. But you know what? I saw that firsthand. I, I agree with you. No, no, I agree with what you're saying. But let me just give you another viewpoint on that, is that I saw this firsthand when I was in the Senate and I served with her, is that the Republicans, they would tell me, I mean, they'd pull me aside, you know, I had great relations with Republicans, and by the way, I, I passed a ton of legislation when I was there, and almost all of it was bipartisan. These Republicans would pull me aside, and they would tell me, kind of with a little bit of shame on their face, they'd say, you know, I didn't want to like Hillary Clinton. I didn't want to work with her mm-hmm. because, you know, she was first lady, and maybe they had been for impeachment or whatever, but they said, man, when she got here... You know, I'm all in on her now, so they won't right. tell you that now. Well, of course, time. yeah. Well, but, there's but there's she, there's back channel conversation. I think probably right. about every every leader. And we and unfortunately we've got to take a short president. break. Okay. So uh, when we come back, let's talk about that the polarizing Perfect. effect that some of these candidates are going to have. Perfect. You're yep. listening to the Costa Report. Do you love creating salads as much as you enjoy eating them? Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole inspires fresh and wholesome dishes for any meal with their wide selection of salad blends and all-natural salad kits. From the mild and tender texture of sweet butter lettuce to the crunch of classic romaine sprinkled with colorful shredded carrots and red cabbage, Dole has over 30 salad blends to satisfy every palate. If you're looking for the ultimate in convenience, try Dole's unique salad kit combinations that include farm-fresh lettuces and vegetables, mouth-watering all-natural toppings, and specially made dressings. It's all you need to make a distinctively delicious salad. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.dolesalads.com for recipes and other ideas to feed your culinary imagination. 
Your future is right here in Santa Cruz County. Hello, folks. Bill Teisling, CEO of the Santa Cruz Area Chamber of Commerce here with an invitation for you to get a peek of the future at the 26th Annual Business Fair at the Coconut Grove Ballroom on Beach Street in Santa Cruz. We will celebrate the future and the businesses in Santa Cruz County who are creating it. Visit over 100 booths and tables. Get in on the future. Learn about all the new businesses. Find a job, eat, drink, and have a ball Wednesday at the Chamber of Commerce's 26th Annual Business Fair, 4 to 7 at the Coconut Grove Ballroom. The original Stagnero family has been in business since 1879. The Stagnero name stands for quality, quantity, and great service. The family's Gilda's Restaurant on the Santa Cruz Municipal Wharf is still the fishing headquarters of the Santa Cruz area. It's where fishermen gather each morning for coffee and breakfast before heading out on the bay. Stop by Gilda's and say hi. Dino looks forward to meeting you at Gilda's on the center of the Santa Cruz Municipal Wharf. Hi, Registered Pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years, and what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, it may change your life. While most folks know that hormones are important, a 100 years after they were first discovered, they still remain shrouded in mystery and masked in misunderstandings by MDs and laypeople alike. Human bodies have two major classes of hormones. One type is fast-acting and rapidly broken down. These quick-acting hormones have technical names like peptides and eicosanoids, and they dissolve in water. They allow cells to respond to their environment in a speedy fashion, and then they're quickly broken down. In the brain, these hormone chemicals are called neurotransmitters, and they're associated with various moods and brain functions. But when most people talk about hormones and hormone problems, they're usually referring to the second type, a more long-acting fatty hormone substance called steroids. Typically, the so-called male hormone testosterone and the so-called female hormone estrogen. If you're a guy or a gal with a hormone problem and you're referring to testosterone or estrogen, what can you do? Well, probably the most important step that you can take to return these two fat-soluble steroid substances back to their appropriate levels and potency is to pay attention to your intake of fatty foods. Steroid hormones are all derived from cholesterol, which is a major component of fat-dense foods like eggs and dairy and organ meats and make sure you're absorbing them. That means after you eat your eggs and your dairy and your liver, use digestive enzymes, apple cider vinegar, all of which can improve the body's ability to absorb and utilize their fat and fatty nutrient content. Pharmacist Ben here urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos, too, at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is former Senator of Arkansas, Mr. Mark Pryor. And before the break, we were talking about the polarization in Washington and how some candidates may help to tame this and build a bridge, and other candidates may exacerbate the divisiveness. Uh, We had to go to a hard break there, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to finish your thoughts on that. Well, first, let me say this, Rebecca. I appreciate you because in this talk show that you have, you actually let people talk and you let them <laughs> kind of finish their sentence. Well, that's kind of and, the point of talk radio, and, although some yeah, hosts have well, forgotten about that. <laughs> yeah, it may be for you, but it's not for a lot of people. But anyway, I do appreciate that. But, you know, the bottom line is we, we our society is very divided right now, unfortunately, yes. and I, I hate it. Man, I hate it, but I you see a lot of race division in our in our uh, country. You see a lot of class division, and boy, that's not good for the country. We need people. We need leaders that we elect, and also other types of leaders, business leaders, and even celebrity leaders, et cetera, um, who can bring us together instead of divide us. And unfortunately, we're we're seeing more and more of that. And uh, well, you to know, your point, you know, recently Trent Lott and Tom Daschle, you know, join, yeah. uh, put a book together, Crisis yeah. Point, and they're yeah. doing everything they can as uh, you know, as former leaders uh, to yeah. try to build some kind of a bridge and get the country moving forward again. See, I serve with both those guys too. And Wonderful they, they, folks. They, yeah, they were kind of at the at the end of of uh, of an era, and where you know before them, I mean, they were kind of, I guess. 
at the end of there, I guess you can say. But anyway, you look at like before them, you had leaders like George Mitchell yes. of Maine, and you had ba- Howard Baker of Tennessee, of course, Robert Byrd of West Virginia, and others. These these people led the Senate. They didn't lead the party. They led the Senate. And they, they're, at the end of the day, what they were trying to do is get legislation done. They were trying to govern. Mm-hmm. And they weren't trying to play party politics. And sure, they were either Democrats or Republicans. Absolutely, they were that. But that was not their primary focus. Unfortunately, again, part of this is the polarization of our uh, society and political system, everything else. But unfortunately, now what you see is so many people in the House and Senate, and I'm not talking about just the leaders of each body, but so many people, so many members, they are there to carry the water for the party, and that's all they care about doing. And it it's not good for the country. It's just well, not let's good. let's talk about that because you're one of the people that wanted to do the right thing by the country, and uh, that sometimes meant voting against your own. Uh, party raising the minimum yeah. wage to ten dollars and ten cents was one of those issues, uh, and this surprised a lot of people in your party since the president came out strong on uh, his amendment to the Fair Labor Standards Act of right. 1938. The minimum wage is back on the docket again, and Sanders right. is making the case it's got to be raised to fifteen dollars, and there's got to be a law requiring employers to provide paid sick leave. Uh, is he right? Well, I don't know if he's right, and I. And by the way, I serve with with Bernie Sanders, and have a lot of respect for Bernie. I I, I probably don't. I'm not at the same place he is. With but you that broke with your way. party on that issue, and that was not easy. I did. That was not, not easy. easy. There was a lot of pressure on hey, you. Hey, I broke with my party a lot of times, <laughs> a whole lot of times. But see, what? But in today's world, if you if you're like a guy like me back in when I was in the Senate, I was there for twelve years. So a guy like me in the Senate, you know, I would do that. I would break with my party. I'd do what I thought was the right thing. And at that moment, you're thinking, okay, if I ever want to get reelected, I've got to trust the people on this. I've got to understand. I got. I hope that they will understand that I'm trying to do what's right for them, what's best for them. In that context, which you talked about, minimum wage, we had a minimum wage uh, initiative that was on the ballot. And I knew it was going to pass. We we had a lot. We kind of lined up the business community behind it, and it was a little more modest than what you're proposing on the federal side. But it was something that everybody agreed on, and sure enough, it passed with big numbers in Arkansas. So, you know, I was supportive of that. And I didn't want to undermine that. So, anyway, that mm-hmm. that was the context. But there. that but wasn't you, the only time that no, you had no. to no. be thinking, "Will I be no. punished by the oh, yeah. party?" I mean, you went out on a limb on the estate tax issue. Yeah. And you were only one of two Democratic senators to vote against the withdrawal of most of the U.S. troops from Iraq. And it turns right. out that uh, you were uh, your decision has been vindicated. Yeah, that's right. And so I appreciate you saying that. And, and, and we did, I did a lot of things like that that I, I wanted to try to be, if I could be, the voice of reason. And so, for example, what happens in, in politics a lot of times is, is the issue gets all ginned up. Sometimes that's on person on purpose and, yes. and intentional. Other times it just happens. But I remember, like for example, on "Don't Ask, Don't Tell," which was you know gays and lesbians serving in the military. You know, I said where, where I came out on that was look. I said, look, they're going to study it, and we've already agreed to this. Let the generals, let the Joint Chiefs Staff study it. Let them come back to us and make the recommendation. I want to see what that is. Will it harm our preparedness? Will it harm the camaraderie? Will it, you know, anyway, they studied it for a year, year and a half, whatever it was. They came back and they said no. So then I voted to undo it. And so, but in the meantime, I was getting lots of heat from my party and people in my party saying, come on, man, you know, be with us on this. And I said, no, we have a process here. You know, let's let, we're talking about our military. Let's, let's make sure the military is comfortable with this. And again, I think... What happened in the end is, and I, you tell me, but I've not seen any evidence that that was a bad decision. I think in the end it worked out fine. You know, so. no, But I think there's something to be said for people that get elected that are pragmatists before, yeah. uh, you know, before they uh, pledge their allegiance to the party. Well, I mean, and, and, you, and you've been kind of that way. You look at your mm-hmm. record and you look at, you know, how you voted and you were kind of a practical guy. If it was yeah. a decision that involved the military, you wanted the military to weigh right. in. That's right. And like, like, like another controversial, since we're talking about some controversial stuff, like with gun issues, I remember the, you know, I live in a state, by the way, that heavily gun ownership, heavy gun ownership in our state, and, and probably 
and I know there are more guns in our state than there are people. You know, it's just part of our culture. It's the South. It's hunting. It's a lot of other things. But anyway, I remember the NRA would come to me and kind of, they wouldn't be very nice. You know, they would kind of threaten and, you know, kind of try to bully me. And I would always say, look, on this issue, I'm going to talk to law enforcement. I want to know what law enforcement says. And a lot of times I would side with law enforcement. And sometimes, I, I mean, pretty much all the time I would side with law enforcement. And that was not always the same as where the NRA wanted me to be. So the NRA, they didn't want me to talk to anybody else. They wanted me to talk to them. That's all they wanted. They wanted me to ask one person. That's the NRA. And I wasn't going to do that. I was going to talk to my local sheriffs, my you know local police chiefs, my local people I knew. And and they were going to be part of that decision, too. And also, by the way, speaking of controversial stuff, voted for the Affordable Care Act. I became convinced that that was the best thing to do for the country and for my state. I think I'm right. But you know what? That was a big factor in me losing the election because a lot of people, a lot of these groups, these super PACs, and a lot of just people in general, either they don't like it or they don't understand it, but they you know do not uh, support the fact that I supported that. So, well, it anyway. would. I think it would have helped a great deal if they would have simplified it so the average person on the street could even oh, understand yeah. it. It Look, didn't it, help when Nancy Pelosi no, put her hand on it and said, "I'm glad no. we passed it so I can read it now." No, no, no. I agree with you. Listen, it was a. I'm gonna tell you, it was. You know, they say there's two things you don't want to watch being made: sausage and law. And watching that law being passed was, it was painful. It was painful. It yeah. was. It went on for a year and a half or whatever else. It was painful. I had literally hundreds of meetings with everybody you can imagine about it. And I just, over time, became convinced it was the way to go. And besides that, there was no alternative. You know, it's not like people who are opposed to it would come to you with a better solution. We well, all, that's what I meant about you being a pragmatist. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't what everything that you would hope no. that it would be, but there was no uh, logical alternative at the time. And so... Every- uh, you that's know, right. Uh, time Every will single, tell whether it was the right thing to oh, do. Yeah, that's not. right. That's right. And I guess this election will have something to do with it. But every single person in the country back then could tell you, would, would tell you in a poll or just on the street, they would tell you there's there's things wrong with our health care system we ought to fix. Okay. So then when you try to fix it, you get criticized for it. But that's just that's just part of it. You know, well, that's, that's what I mean about being a pragmatist. You yeah. know, you you're, you have to be practical about it and say if it gives us a little bit of uh, yeah. relief, then we kind of have to go for it. And then you want to move there, the ball forward. Yeah, yeah you want to move the ball forward. Everything can't be a touchdown. Now, we that's have right. to take our final intermission. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Costa Report. Big data is being generated by everything around us all the time. Every digital process and social media exchange produce it. Systems, sensors, and mobile devices transmit it. Big data is arriving from multiple sources with ever-increasing velocity, volume, and variety. It's becoming the world's newest resource for competitive advantage, allowing decision-making to move from the elite few to the empowered many. The escalating demand for insights requires a fundamentally new approach to architecture, tools, and practices. To extract meaningful value from big data, you need optimal processing power, analytics capabilities, and skills. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business. Visit www.ibm.com slash bigdata today. That's www.ibm.com slash big data. Caraccioli Cellars recently celebrated the fifth anniversary of their tasting room. This is what Enophiles had to say. Anna Russell, I love Caraccioli wine because I love the San Lucia Highlands, and I think this is a particularly great representation of what SLH can do that's different, um, using the most common grapes, Pinot and, and Chardonnay, and making something really beautiful and different for the area. I love the wine, so I always come back to almost every one of their events. My name is Jenny Franklin. I like it because it's very flavorful. It just is a good Pinot. goes down without touching any sides. Very good. Full of lace. I really like the Brut Rosé. I like the older varietals too. I think it's just the way they manufacture it. The way that it uh, they produce it is old world style and I enjoy that. 
Visit the Caraccioli Tasting Room on Dolores Street in Carmel-by-the-Sea or find us online at caracciolicellars.com or reach us by phone at 831-622-7722. Not available in California. Listeners, do you have startup capital and want to invest in a booming business with incredible profit and growth potential? The opportunity is now because Fresh Healthy Vending, the number one healthy vending franchise in North America, is looking for a few business-savvy, healthy-minded people right here in the local area to become Fresh Healthy Vending franchise owners. We're growing so fast that we've had hundreds of new franchise owners in the last few years alone. Now you can join them. This area has a huge demand for Fresh Healthy organic snacks on the go, and that's exactly what you'll be selling with your Fresh Healthy Vending machine. We've already identified prime high-traffic locations that are perfect for healthy vending machines. Now we just need the right people to join our franchise network and help Fresh Healthy Vending continue to boom. If this sounds like you, go to readyforfresh.com today and enter code 3434. We'll send you a free owner information kit. As an added bonus to new franchise owners, we'll also pay half the franchise fees. Hurry, this offer is limited. Just go to readyforfresh.com and enter code 3434. That's readyforfresh.com 3434. People do not like going to the dentist unless they're going to this dentist. Hello folks, Michael Olson here with Dr. Guy Peabody. Dr. Guy, whenever I go by your office, I see people with big smiles on their face. What's the secret? I'm glad you're seeing everybody smiling. You know, we like to make people smile on the inside as well as on the outside. What do you mean by smiling on the inside, doctor? Well, we just treat people the way we want to be treated. We befriend our patients. Uh, They're not really our patients, they're more our family. We have a good time. We want to provide, obviously, an excellent quality service and stability in our care. But, you know, I'll be working throughout the day and I'll hear laughter down the hallway between my hygienists and her patients and the front desk. I'll have people chuckling and people are a little reluctant to kind of head out the door. They're having a really good time. Call Dr. Guy Peabody for our consultation today and wake up to a great smile tomorrow, 831-457-0343 or visit drpeabody.com. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former senator from Arkansas, Mr. Mark Pryor. And we've been talking about the race for the White House and also about some of your work in the Senate. Um, setting aside the campaign speeches and all the rhetoric that's uh, been going on, what, in your view, is job number one for the next president? Oh, gosh. I would say that what you want to see uh, the president do is provide steady leadership in several areas. One is the economy. Obviously, you want our economy to get back on track where the economy actually works for everybody. Mm -hmm. And it's working great for a lot of people now, but not for everybody. And so, um, you know, it shouldn't just be for the super wealthy or the upper middle class. It should really work for everybody. And so we we need a president focused on that. The other thing is, obviously, we need to get our foreign policy straight. There's been a lot of rancor over foreign policy. Mm-hmm. The The U.S. historically had a fairly stable foreign policy during the Cold War because we had a common enemy. We were all we could all agree on that, you know. Since the Soviet Union has gone away, we've we've kind of veered around, especially during President Bush's years with the neocon movement, and then President Obama had a chance to kind of. Uh, put it back to where it used to be, but he kind of did his own reset, and he's taken us in a couple of directions that are a little different and a little unsettling for some people in this country. So we need to work on that. But the other thing is there's a fundamental... Well, we may be going back to the Cold War. Yeah, I hope not. No, I, hope <laughs> not. I mean, if Putin keeps up his shenanigans, we'll be Putin. going back to Cold War, and maybe got, that'll. Are you? Are, are, would you think that that would settle our foreign policy again to have a common enemy? Um, I don't know about that. You hmm. know, you know that was so different with Soviet Union and having half of Eastern Europe and having huge sway in Asia and things like that, and around the country, around the world, and things mm-hmm. like that. But, but the other thing is that I really hope that they will focus on, or he or she uh, will focus on as president in the next four years, would be getting our fiscal house in order. That That's a fundamental that we need to fix. The, the good news is that we can balance the budget. We can do this. President Clinton and the Congress, and by the way, they were partners. You had Democrats that were in charge of the Congress initially, then Republicans. President Clinton provided that leadership to balance the budget, and he did. He balanced the budget. And he was actually paying down the national debt. Had we stayed that course fiscally, 
we, we would be debt-free today. Mm-hmm. So we, we can do it. Now, we can't be impatient. We have to recognize it's going to take a long time. We have a huge debt right now. So, But but we need a president who's committed. It takes presidential leadership to do that. And, you know, those are just three of the areas, I'd say. So that's, you know, the, the economy, foreign policy world, and then, um, you, you know, the fiscal policy for the country. Those are three. There's well, the interesting thing is, is that once the economy does well, then the money starts flowing back into the government. There's more money to pay off no that doubt. deficit. And so that mm-hmm. the two are interrelated. You know? And, and that, that was another thing that President Clinton had going for him in his years is the economy was going strong. And, well, sure. and see, and see, we had back then. I wasn't in the Senate back then, so I wouldn't. I never was in the House, so I was an outsider then. Uh, but, but what he did, which I thought was very smart, is he had tax cuts, but they were targeted. So instead of like across the board tax cuts, he would target his tax cuts, and he would say, "Okay, we want corporate America to invest in these things." And like it might be in technology, it might be in, you know, whatever they were. And they had a list of things. And you know what? It works. And you can you can use the tax code in a very constructive way like that. And um, anyway, instead of just well, those big, tax cuts were being used as incentives. They were. And, but, yeah. but but with the difference in those tax cuts and the, the next series of tax cuts, which was under President Bush, which, by the way, I'm, you know, I'm not here throwing a stone at President Bush because a lot of Democrats in the House and Senate voted for those tax cuts. Right. Yes, they did. We, we had a balanced budget. So I'm not trying to say it's all his fault. Let's just blame the Republicans. But the truth is, again, presidential leadership, you know, he he basically, or we as a nation, we, we cut taxes largely across the board with no sort of strategic reason to do it, just to lower taxes. And guess what happened? We blew up the death, the deficits every year again, and we started adding to the government spending. We did the um, Medicare expansion. We did other things. And so, anyway, there's there's some nuts and bolts. There's some just... Well, it's always difficult to blame any president when, in fact, Congress holds the purse strings. So, yeah, but... Yeah, you know, that's, that's like me blaming my kids that I don't have any money. Yeah, well, that, that's true. That's kind of true. That's a good analogy. But, you know, at the same time, it is presidential leadership. You know, it's it, the president has, out of anybody, he has the biggest microphone, the biggest platform. That doesn't mean he always gets his way or, you know, but you, you know what I mean. So it really, in you know, we tend to oversimplify and blame a president or, 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 or give the president credit. Like I've sure. heard people say before with President Reagan, you know, he ended the Cold War. Well, guess who voted for the military buildup. There were a lot of Democrats that voted for that. Mm-hmm. You know. So anyway, not yeah, to get yeah, into all yeah, that stuff. So very much so. A, well, you know, you don't, you can't get anything through without getting uh, bipartisan support. Absolutely. And that is what we've been talking about today. Uh, it's harder, Absolutely. and it's getting harder and harder. I mean, at the point at which I got to ask you, can't we find seven Republicans and seven Democrats? You know, and you say, I don't know. I've been going through well, the list. <laughs> I would hope so. I mean, I would hope so. And I, I, I was going to say, I was going through the list to see if we could find a way to break that logjam in the Senate. And obviously, it's got to come from inside the Senate. It's And basically, the, the, the minefield, the danger on this one, the political negativity on this one is on the Republican side. So they have to show some courage, and it's hard to do. It's hard to get seven, and it's hard to go against your leader. It's hard to know that basically you're going to infuriate the Koch brothers and the Club for Growth and Carl Rove and all these other people, Grover Norquist, all these other people that have so much sway, Rush Limbaugh, you name it, that have so much sway with the Republican voters. So we'll see. I wish they would. I'd love to see it. And I do know that when we did the game of 14, we did the first several, many, many, many weeks in private. The press didn't know about it till about two weeks out. So maybe they are talking. I don't know. Well, we hope so. Uh, I know you. Uh, we've been talking about uh, uh, the uh, presidential election and you have been taking a rest from public office i was wondering do you have any future plans to return to office i get asked that all the time i don't know i mean look i i'm i'm a person that just on a just purely a personal level and this is going to kind of sound weird but bear with me I, my identity is not all wrapped up in whether i'm in office well or thank not. goodness mr Pryor. <laughs> I mean, You mean you have a life? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I have a life. I love doing it. I love the public service. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about taking hard votes. 
I felt like that's how I was elected. You know, I felt like you got to my, my view of that is if you want to stay in office too much, then you start to compromise your own, uh, you know, your own principles and you shouldn't do that. So you have to be willing to walk away. You have to kind of say, OK, there are some issues that are just so important that I'll take the heat and if they vote me out then hey you know I did my best I can look at myself in the mirror and that's kind of what I try well that is what I tried to do for 12 years and you know I walked away I didn't have any regrets I mean sure I could have done a few things better there were there were a few votes that came along that if I had more information or whatever I probably would have voted different but hey out of 12 years yeah you're going to have a few clunkers on the resume but I was I was proud of what we did, and, and I, what I tried to do more than anything was be very bipartisan, tried to be, like I said earlier, try to be a voice of reason, try to try to be a bridge builder, a problem solver, and that was getting harder and harder. In the well, state. I will tell you that in anticipation of your interview today, I must have had uh, 500 emails that said, ask him if he would become U.S. Attorney General, ask him if he's going to run for governor. Uh, so oh, I, I had to put that to you because uh, you got a lot of fans out there. Well, I loved doing it. Um, I really did. And, you know, it's a little bit part of my blood. You know, my grandmother in Arkansas, she was the first woman in Arkansas history to ever run for office. And, I didn't and she, know that. I know. And she actually lost to a World War One one-armed veteran. A guy who lost his arm in the war. Now, now oh, nobody goodness. can be him, right? I mean, <laughs> you have James Carville working for you then. You're not going to beat that guy. <laughs> no, but, you're but not going to beat that guy. <laughs> but but my, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, they were all sheriffs of their home county, Washtenaw County in Arkansas. And, of course, my dad had about 35 years in politics. So I've been around it. I grew up around it. I, I, I love our democracy. I love our country. I love my state. And I want to make a difference. But at this point in my life, to answer your question, hey, I'm happy where I am. And we'll see what the future holds. I'm, I'm not. Well, I'm I am afraid. Yeah, we are all out of time. But before we say goodbye, I want to thank you and your family for your service well, to our country. We're thank you, Mr. Pryor. Thank you. It's great talking to you. Thanks for having me on. If your station is leaving us after the first hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Mark Pryor, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. And uh, be sure you stick around because we got one more hour of the Costa Report coming up, the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for the second hour of the Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 